Hi, this is Edward Finley Richardson, and this is the first of what I hope to be many interviews, exclusive interviews on misadventures in shipping, uh, my main website where I share more in-detailed articles and information about the shipping markets. So today I am absolutely delighted to be with the CEO of Clavness Combination Carriers, which is a fascinating company, as you will see. And I think a company which can be of interest to investors who are already familiar with the dry bulk markets and the clean tanker markets, because it trades in both, but it does it in an unusual way. So, um, Engerbred, thank you for joining me to talk about the company. Could you just uh, give us a first, uh, let's say, bird's eye view of the company and what it does differently? Thank you, Edward, and I'm very happy to be at this uh, podcast. Uh, so, in KCC, we are owners of uh, combination carriers that are ships that are both product tankers and dry bulk ships at the same time. We are quite unique in the sense that we are the, probably the only one in the world doing it with a couple of uh, small ex uh, exceptions. Yeah, and I, if I understand correctly, you had the ships specially made for you. And just to, to give a kind of a, an overview... I think what's really fascinating about your company is that one of the problems with shipping most commodities is that you have these long ballast legs. So you'll have uh, cape size vessels picking up, let's say, iron ore and going all the way to China and then sailing back empty. And so not only is that inefficient from a carbon footprint perspective because they're wasting so much fuel without carrying cargo, but also there, there aren't really ways to triangulate for all trades. So I think in one of your presentations, you mentioned that in the clean product trade, it's something like 30% ballast days. So what that implies is that for the rest of the 70%, the clean tankers are laden, but they kind of can't get around this 30% empty. And in dry bulk, it's closer to say 40 or 50%. So I think what many people don't realize is because of the way where the commodities are and where the demand is, a lot of the ships that are crisscrossing the globe are empty, let's say a third to half of the time. And it's just a lot of waste. And so your combination, uh, your way of shipping, really uses common sense, I would say, to plan trades to avoid shipping empty all the time or ballasting, as we call it in shipping. So can you explain that a little bit more in detail? Yeah, no, I think it, it is, you know, the fundamentals is that the, the trade flows are not even. Typically, in the, our main uh, trades, typically into Brazil and into Australia. Australia typically has, you know, every type of commodity you can imagine, dry bulk commodity, exporting. But they are a huge importer of many what we call wet products, tanker products. And that means that the dry bulk ship has no cargo into Australia and the product tankers have no cargoes out of Australia or very limited. And of course, that is what we solve by having ships that are designed to safely and efficiently combine the cargoes that the standard ships are carrying. Right. And another really interesting trade I was looking at one of your presentations is, I think it's sugar and grains coming out of Brazil being shipped to the Middle East. And then from the Middle East, there's, let's say, gas oil or diesel being shipped to Argentina. So that's a really efficient trade also. Can you give the listeners an idea of... Uh, how common that trade is among your carriers. I guess there's, we should explain also that there's the clean booze and the kaboos and people are going to find that strange at first, but I think it's important also to to describe the two different kinds of vessels and how they're different. 
Yeah, so if we, if we start up with the we don't know the two vessel types we have. So we have the carbus, which are more simpler type of combination carriers in the sense that they can only transport caustic soda and two other type of wet commodities when they are in tanker mode. Uh, and they can transport basically every dryable commodity you can imagine. And then we have the clean boost that can transport both every type of dryable commodity, but also every type of tanker commodity. So they are more flexible, but also more expensive to build and to operate. And, and of course, they're more flexible. That's the main difference is that the carbus are more specialized, going into fewer trades, uh, mainly competing against MR tankers in the trades they are employed, while the clean boost are full-fledged l one tankers competing against uh, then L1s and from time to time uh, L2s, but they, they do exactly the same. And when they're in dry mode, they are a, a Camsomax dry bulk ship. You know, there exist thousands of the same ships, but not on over on ours. Yes, and uh, one of the things I'd like to talk about also is the, because of course the clean tanker market is especially strong now, coming on almost two years following the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And I noticed that some of your uh, vessels are carrying cargoes into the east coast of the United States or into the U.S. Gulf. Can you talk about what they are? In? Is it diesel? Is it gasoline? What is exactly? Uh, the ships we bring in, we get into U.S. East Coast. That we transport alkylite, which is a product which is used into blending of gasoline in the U.S., which I think improves the efficiency of the fuel. And uh, so we bring, we take uh, cargo in from India into U.S. East Coast, uh, and then we uh, go empty down to U.S. Gulf, where we have a lot of optionality. So we can take dry out of U.S. Gulf, if the dry market is strong, or we can take uh, products soft to Brazil, and then we can take dry out of Brazil, or we can take veg- vegetable oils. So, so there's a lot of, uh, and uh, many other options you can you can take, but that is the trade we do. And then, of course, if the tanker market is extremely strong, we may do like today. I mean, of course, the, the product tanker market in the US Gulf is just incredibly strong at the moment. So then we, we may even, from time to time, say, okay, we do ballast. We are going down to South America and we go empty back again, just because the difference between the earnings of the tanker market versus the dry market is so, so huge. And it's this what we call window of opportunity in the market you are just utilizing. Mm-hmm. But basically, having ships that are so flexible creates so much optionality in a market that is so extremely volatile, and that creates value. Yeah, actually, that brings up something which I wanted to mention. Among shipping companies, there are some that are particularly adept at using technology to uh, increase utilization or efficiency. And from what I gather, from what I've uh, read about in the presentations of the company and also from meeting some of your researchers it seems like Klavnis is particularly geeky when it comes to how they decide which trades to do when, etc. So can you tell me who decides what you just described? Who decides to, let's say, drop off the dry bulk trade and to concentrate exclusively on clean earnings? Who is calculating that? It is actually our charters. So we, we know we have a pretty small fleet still, and, uh, and we have quite good resources. We have, ba- we have four charters. So basically four ships per charter. So it requires more, we call it a little bit more manpower and more calculations. So they're doing these evaluations all the time. 
we are, we are quite true to our concept of efficiency, meaning that if we do this extra run with CPP where we ballast, we have this what we call calculative cost of carbon we put into the equation. So actually we, we are willing to, to make a small or what do you call uh, loss or compared to you know doing the ballast to achieve efficiency and do do the combination trade. Mm-hmm. But typically in, in most of the markets where we use this, you you still will it, it will not be important enough to, to change the, the decision. Right. Yeah, I've also noticed in your presentations that you really highlight the way that being involved in both trades can help reduce the, the waste, let's say, and the volatility in the earnings. Because, of course, it's unusual for both markets to be strong at the same time. It can happen. They can coincide, but they really are uncorrelated trades, except for, say, let's say, a strong economy might help both. But beyond that, there's d- different seasonal effects. And uh, I've noticed that being able to be involved in both simultaneously allows you to achieve higher than, let's say, the average of each trade on its own. I think it was 40% higher. So can you explain that a little bit? It is, if you go back, you know, decades and decades, there is not many quarters where you'll see that the dry bulk and the tanker market is either very weak or very strong at the same time. And you would imagine shipping would be dependent on the world economy and trade flows, but there are different drivers in these two markets. Hmm. So that means that when we trading in both dry and wet, you get, you know, of course, as today, today, of course, we earn more money in, in the tanker trade than we do in, in the dry bulk trade. But two years ago, we did, it was opposite. And then also we have the possibility to allocate a little bit more capacity to the market that is the strongest because you have the, the flexible ships. So typically back in 2021, when the tanker market was weak, we had a higher proportion of the, or days in the dry bulk trade than in the tanker trade. And today we, we have the opposite. Mm. But we still have a very high percentage of time in combination trade and, and a low ballast. Do you remember offhand how much uh, you are exposed at the moment? We're speaking, I think, is it the 1st of December today? Hmm. Uh, so this may be released a, a few days later, but can you remind me, uh, I know that it evolves over time. Hmm. You have a percentage of exposure to spot market in clean versus dry bulk. Typically, we we'll say that the carboos are close to 50%, maybe a little bit more, 50%. In, in the tanker market and then slightly less than 50% in the dry bulk market. The clean boosts, we, given that they're more flexible ships, at the moment they are trading probably something like 70% plus in, in the tanker market. And we do that partly that we do these occasional ballasts in order to just utilize these fantastic uh, opportunities that may be on a certain time. But we also add typically a third leg. So again, like we talked about, coming into the long distance with tanker trade into US East Coast, taking a tanker trade south to South America, and then taking dry out again. So you basically have two trades in tanker and one in dry. And, and you wouldn't do that in a weak tanker market. So that that's, you know, the... Right, that's the evidence of, of what you're able to do in this particular market, yeah. in other words, yeah. That's, so that's what, how we optimize, and that's why you, you are evening out the volatility in the market. Right, okay. And I guess one of the things I've been wondering, uh, I haven't seen much documentation about how you clean the tanks, hmm. because this is the one thing you know, that, that we can't understand really as, as let's say, pure uh, product tanker investors or pure dry bulk investors. What allows you to do that? How long does it take? Uh, 
how have you trained your staff to know how to do that? What what, what were the difficulties? Because you, you've made up this trade, right? So you've had to kind of invent it as you're going along. No, I think, you know, the, as you say, it's really the core of everything we do. I mean, it, we need to ensure that we, we have both an efficient cleaning and a high quality cleaning. That, that's really the, the, the center of, of our business. If we don't achieve that, I mean, we're out of business. So that's why we use so much resources on it and, and of course, do investments in the ships to make it happen. So again, that's the starting point, building ships that are particularly designed for safe and efficient cleaning. And that goes with the way the cargo tanks and holds are built, very smooth, no place where the cargo can get stuck. And you have very efficient cleaning guns and you have a high, much higher capacity, what you call fresh water generation capacity and heating capacity. So typically you would clean the tanks with the fresh water, which is 80 degrees or something Celsius. So, so that is, you know, having ships that are the most advanced possible in, in terms of, uh, of cleaning. And then, of course, having the operational routines, how you do it, how you check it, how the, you may have to go down and do some manual uh, work. Uh, and on the verification, of course, we are taking these what we call 3D pictures of the cargo tanks after each cleaning, which we send to the customers. And they also bring on board uh, inspectors. So to, to ensure that it's um, it, it, it's cleaned, uh, and I think we have never, maybe once, maybe over all these years, been you know asked to do the cleaning one more time. But you need to have the people on board, the people on shore that knows what to do, where are the weak points, uh, and what do we have to be extra careful about. So uh, on the clean boost, they have seven tanks and cargo holds. I mean, there are both the tanker cargo and the drivable cargo are in the same, what you call, space. And and that means you, you have to clean, you also have to inert, because, you know, if you transport petroleum products, you need this gas, which is reducing the, the risk of, uh, what do you call, explosions, that, you know, that's the standard for every tanker. So that takes time to just do that, to, to do the inerting of the tanks, and also to gas-freeing it afterwards, before you can open up the cargo, the, the cargo hatches, uh, on the top, which is actually what is what is making it possible to load the drivable commodity. So on a clean boot, it would take normally five, six days, maybe seven if we are lucky. And you can do it partly while you are transiting, in the few days you are in transit. So uh, so typically it, it, is, it, it is an investment, and that's why our concept works best on longer haul. If you have, you know, five days sailing, you couldn't really defend the inefficiency. Ah, this is a really important detail. It actually explains a lot of the why in the routes that you do. Yeah. Because you do have really long routes. If you look at the maps in your presentations, uh, you know, going from India to whatever it is, Brazil or... Yeah, okay, that's interesting. So what you're saying, if, if I understand correctly, just make sure if you're, say, dropping off a, a clean petroleum product cargo... It may be that you're starting the cleaning as you're ballasting to wherever you're going to be loading next. Yeah. And so that way you're not losing the time in port just sitting there yeah. scrubbing and everything. That's fascinating. Okay. So, so and, uh, and, and the Carboost, they have only three of the seven cargo compartments uh, for Caustic because Caustic soda is very heavy. It has a specific gravity of one and a half. So we don't need more than, than three compartments or, or cargo holds. And that means the cleaning are quicker. And I also, you don't need uh, the, what we call the inerting system 
own caustic soda because it's not uh, what we would call a, a pr- petroleum product. Right, there's no residuals that are so, dangerous so, for the yeah, other so products. That's basically day or two. Okay. So it's, that's more efficient. Yeah, um, I know that uh, obviously caustic soda is only part of what you do, but it is quite a niche trade or as seen from tanker investors who think that everything is diesel and gasoline. Mm. And also, um, you were mentioning earlier to me that there's uh, a kind of a special trade with respect to Australia. Uh, can you explain that a little bit? Because I think this is something which dry bulk investors, tanker investors are not necessarily aware of. I think we we really focus on everything which is associated with motor engines running and that kind of thing. We d- I think a lot of people don't even know to what extent vegetable oils are important to the clean petroleum product pr- trade, but but caustic soda in particular has a use and also a trade route associated with that use, which is really important to your company. So maybe you could go into that a little bit. Yeah, no, I think, as you say, more than half the cargos we transport are on, on as a tanker cargo is caustic soda. So a little bit more than 50%. Uh, and, and that is uh, currently uh, only into Australia. So the caustic uh, soda is a commodity which is used in a number of industrial applications, everything from water sanitation to forest products to uh, to uh, aluminium uh, alumina industry, and uh, the alumina industry is the biggest user in terms of percentage, but still not more than maybe twenty percent to fifteen to twenty percent. So it's um, and Australia is uh, has also one of the biggest resources of bauxite. And you use the caustic soda to then refine the bauxite to alumina. That's the alumina industry. But you also use caustic soda to to the growing uh, battery material industry, which is the, you use it to refine spodium rock to lithium hydroxide. You use caustic soda to refine nickel uh, and cobalt. Uh, and that is uh, all the resources you find in Australia. So the base we have today is transporting caustic soda for the alumina refineries which are the six big refineries in, in Australia, which are the most uh, among the most cost-competitive in the world due, due to their size and also their closeness to the bauxite mines. And then you have the lithium uh, refineries that have started to operate recently and are now grow- more or less ramping up their production. Yeah, that's fascinating because I think that most people who invest in the commodity space they think of Australia as a place where the commodities are coming from and then being shipped out to be refined somewhere else. In particular in China, a lot of the rare earth metals, uh, some of the ones you mentioned like cobalt or even lithium, you know, we think of that as a huge bottleneck and even geopolitical risk with the fact that China is the one which is kind of processing all these rare earth metals. And so I think it's it's really interesting to know that Australia can make use and kind of hold on to some of uh, those commodities and process them, and that basically the caustic soda that you're helping them import is helping them refine them and then even go into a green trade, which has, of course, become really important in the Australian political landscape. I mean, that has affected the product trinker trade because they no longer have any refineries in, in New Zealand or Australia, or very few, and those have been slowly disappearing one by one. And so then you you see these strange cargoes sometimes. I th- think there was an LR2 uh, fixed to go from the U.S. Gulf to the east coast of Australia recently, and it raised, yeah, a, raised right. a lot that's of right. eyebrows. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah, obviously the all the trade routes are now shifting. So it sounds like you're you're benefiting from that, especially if you are, um, let's say, incentivized to do lots of long haul trades. Yeah, no, absolutely, and of course. But there also some negatives as well in, in what's happening. Typically, Russian diesel, of course, has increased the market share into South America. But again, when you have flexible ships and you have more trades, you can switch it out. So that means that we increased the 
the trade into the US East Coast, uh, and and we had to reduce the trade into to South America to Brazil because suddenly uh, Brazil went from zero percentage Russian diesel to eighty percent over three to four months, and that was a little bit surprised to us because every every customer in Brazil told us that no 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 they would not buy Russian <laughs> Russian uh, diesel, <laughs> and then suddenly all the guys are doing it. Right, if it's the right price, right? If yeah. there are lots of volumes to be had, why not? That's the yeah, world that's, we live in. Yes, yeah. that's right. Okay, could you talk a little bit about, I mean, for investors who are, let's say, more focused on the topic of carbon footprint, I think that it's a really tricky subject and one which most shipping companies are a little bit uh, averse to talking about because we really don't know what the next generation fuels are going to look like. There's a lot of nervousness about which ships to order. I think that shipping is also... Uh, as a whole, as a market, kind of upset that shipping has a, a bad reputation as being a polluting industry when in fact uh, it only, uh, I think it amounts to 3% of the world's uh, pollution related to freight. So it's, it, they feel like they really shouldn't need to do any more, but with the EU incentives and IMO on their backs, they are encouraged to reduce emissions. And I think that you guys are really ahead of the game uh, thanks hmm. to your your business plan, but also you you seem to be very focused on that. You you mention it often. You know that it's a it's something which is attractive to a certain kind of investor, in particular institutional money. So can you tell us a little bit more about that? What makes KCC one of the best choices for someone who's looking for a shipping company with exposure to these trades, which are flying high at the end of the year, uh, but which is also let's say sensitive to the topic of reducing carbon footprint and emissions? I think the starting point is that we believe shipping should do much more. Because if you if you compare it, I mean, it's basically the same. I mean, it represents all the emission from Germany. So it's not, you know, maybe in the total world, 3 or 4% or whatever it is, is, is limited, but it's still huge. The core of, of our business model is, of course, as we mentioned, efficiency. And efficient, by being more efficient, you also have a lower carbon footprint. Because actually we, by combining the dry and the, uh, the cargoes, that the dry cargo transported by a dry bulk ship and uh, the tanker cargo by a tanker, you transport more cargoes. And you then have, as you mentioned, lower fuel consumption per ton transported. So just by replacing the standard ships with our ships, you can reduce your carbon footprint by 30-40% without costing any more money. And that's, you know, the... The thing about sustainability, and that, that's again back to the philosophy of what we're doing, is that profitability and sustainability has to come together. Because if it's not profitable, it's not sustainable. Mm. So that is, you know, the model. How can we do things smarter and and at the same time earn more, earn more money? And, and, and that is the real test for sustainability in, in our mind. Yeah, uh, that's, a, that's a very interesting idea, and I think one that you don't hear very often. I think it's always presented as a choice between sustainability or environmental consciousness, or profitability. And uh, yeah, it's, it's refreshing to imagine that there, it doesn't have to be a choice. No, of course, you have to think very thoroughly through it. And, and of course, this trading efficiency we have with our special ships is the, is the base. And then, of course, we are in investing a lot in our ships and in our systems in order to make them even more efficient. Because we see that people... I mean, people invest in that. There are new ships coming, and we always have to make sure we are ahead of the pack. And we are trying to identify what, what is the lowest cost, what we call carbon reducer, in addition to what we already do, which of course is the basically the zero cost carbon reduction through efficiency. 
and and that is what we are we are we are testing out a lot of things and in, uh, investing in our ships, putting on board this air lubrication system and shaft generators and ducts and yeah and and, and that is that is profitable but it's profitable in the sense that you need to have a certain you have need to have a longer term view on your investments and given that we have a a long operational life for our ships we're not buying and selling ships that most ship owners would do we can make our business case on a fairly long duration uh, we'll call operational life which makes it possible for us to do more than than others while we're on the subject, how long is the life of your vessels? We we have a we have five old ladies built between two thousand and one and two thousand and seven, uh, and the customers are accepting that we can use them until they're twenty five, and then of course who knows if the market is super strong, they may accept that we can use them longer, uh, but that that's the base. So we plan for twenty five years, and then of course for as a tanker, of course, operating them. In most trades, after they are 20, could be challenging, but then maybe we use them in the course of the trade where there are more flexibility. Do you expect them to be scrapped afterwards? Because I, I imagine that you don't want to give a competitor somewhere in East Asia the opportunity to uh, use your concepts, right? And, and, and in particular, if they didn't have the expertise to operate it to the same high standards, then that would kind of poison your image, right? So you would probably prefer to scrap or... You, that's right. So, but, but at the same time, if the market is strong, like we did uh, at the peak of the dry market, when it, we had one ship too much in our, our fleet when it comes to the caustic side, uh, and we decided to uh, to sell her as a dry ship. So we basically removed every part of the, the pipes and the pumps, and, uh, and we rec- reclassified her to dry ship, and she is still trading between China and, and, uh, and, and Indonesia, Back and forth, we are following her, uh, and she is doing well. Okay, and 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 that is the thing that, given the high requirement in the tank industry, we need to maintain them to the highest standard. So when they are twenty five, they are looking uh, not, maybe not brand new, but they are in a very high, high quality. Um, yeah, maintenance condition. is a, is, yeah. A, is obviously a priority for you. I want to go to something which interests all investors, which is your uh, capital allocation policy. In particular, I know that you have a regular dividend, which you have been paying out for the last, what, since 2000, I guess since the IPO almost. Hmm. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. And I think it's something like 80% payout at the, at the moment. That's right. And so I guess you also have to be mindful of the fact that you are continuously investing in improving the efficiency, as you said, of your vessels, and that has a cost. Uh, do you have plans to change the capital allocation policy at all? Do you plan to continue uh, paying out 80%? I mean, obviously, we are in an unusually strong market for your vessels at the moment because we are benefiting from a second very uh, surprising rally in the dry bulk market. Uh, we have clean tinker earnings, which are sky high. And we also have a scrubber spread, which at the moment is still hanging in there. It's come off the highs of $230 in Singapore, but it's still, uh, you know, benefiting, let's say, eco-vessels. Or what will you do with the extra cash that we can expect to roll in in Q4? I think, you know, this would call the dividend policy we have. As you mentioned, it's 80% of of free uh, cash flow. Uh, And then, of course, in in that calculation, we take into account the maintenance cash flow you need for the dockings and... uh, uh, and we have we have lived up to that this, uh, that strategy since we went uh, public in in May two thousand and nineteen. 
by doing it, we we secure that our uh, our investors have a choice uh, in terms of uh, you get the payout, and if we need to do big investments that we cannot do based on on the retained earnings, we need to raise the money, uh, and that we have done, and that is a strategy that we have been true to, and and of course there are different maybe different opinions. I mean, is it efficient to do it? I mean, because you are you are paying out so much money and then it may be that you have to raise money like we did this spring when we contracted the three ships and of course raising money isn't uh, free of charge but still we have when we have talked to to investor after investor i think the majority agrees that what we do is first of all it's transparent they know it's what we are doing and we, we normally do what we say uh, and 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 then they have a choice whether they will reinvest in a company and it's also something which compensates partly for the fact that we are still a small company. Uh, and of course, the daily trading volumes have improved a lot over the recent years, but it's not similar to Frontline. Or, so I think that that is a part of uh, what we what we do. And, and this policy, I'm confident, will continue. Okay, so while we're on that subject, what do you think would be the ideal trading size of your fleet? I mean, if the fleet grows too fast too soon that uh, you might be stretched in terms of your optionality, uh, in terms of the demand side? Or how do you feel about that? What do you, what do you have in mind? or What are you able to communicate today uh, about your ambitions with respect to your fleet size? So, so we, we have this unique capability that no one else have in the world. And you have these what are called drivers or trends that, of course, is the increased demand for low-carbon freight and, and the fact the shipping industry have to decarbonize over time. Uh, and also the the second driver is, of course, the cost of fuel, that if you add on the cost of carbon at some stage, the cost of fuel will increase because the new type of fuels will be more expensive. So so these two uh, drivers with the capabilities we have means that we believe we can grow the company. But coming from a family-owned tradition, we are growing it step by step, uh, and doing it uh, in a, a sensible way that we know we have the trades, we have the customers. So on the carbon side, there is probably not enormous what we call growth potential. I mean, the lithium industry in Australia is increasing. Yes, we probably can increase the fleet by two, three ships or something like that. The clean fleet is something we can grow substantially. We could have no problem double. And of course, it's... Uh, we do it a bit step by step there as well because it, we are still in the phase where we are expanding the users and, and the acceptance of the ships. Yeah, and talk about that a little bit because I think that one of the main things which is important mm -hmm. for you is making sure that some of the bigger clients, the oil majors and such, uh, sanction the use of your vessels, that they're okay with it, that you are considered uh, equally as, uh, let's say, a pure play product tanker, and that's taken some time. You have to get in the door, so to speak. So can you explain that? Yeah, I think the, going back just a little bit, bit in history is when we contracted the ships in, in, in 2015, all customers were telling us that they would not use our ships. Of course, we were knocking on the doors to all the oil companies and traders and showing the drawings of these nice ships we were. We wanted to, to contract. We have used a long time to develop them, and, and basically 100% of the people told us that... Uh, we are not going to use you. And of course, all the brokers tell, told us we were crazy. Uh, and then we have used a lot of time. And, and it's basically by showing performance. 
that 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 is, uh, and again, that takes time because you need to build up the track record to show your customers that uh, that you you perform. You you are you are. In, we have no uh, what we call a, a sire vetting uh, of our fleet, which is in line with with uh, with standard uh, tankers, and which is regarded as a high uh, high quality operation. Uh, very safe, no ac- uh, big ac- accidents, and so that that is the core of, of operation is that the high focus on, on quality and safety. So, but by proving the performance, uh, we we have attracted more and more customers, and we have a B- oil majors like BP and Shell that accepts us. Uh, Shell hasn't used used us yet, just for trading where where they are trading. Uh, we are doing a lot of business with Hyson, which is Shell's affiliate in. In South America, and shall do the the vetting on behalf of Heisen. Uh, we have a BP as a as a customer, and we have a contracts with BP. We have uh, we have national oil companies like uh, Adnoc. We have uh, you have the traders. You have Reliance. You have so. At the moment, we are probably around uh, forty companies that have confirmed that they accept our ships and. Of with with the last cargo being dry bulk, and it's, we are growing, and we still have some targets that we, some oil majors that not, have not yet used us, and that is course one of the main targets we we do, and and it is uh, because it's uncommon, it's not standard, meaning that for some companies, oil companies having a policy, we need to change the policy, and that has taken time. Is it safe to assume just from uh, in making inferences from the comments you just made that therefore it's more of a problem psychologically for oil companies or for the oil trade than for the dry bulk trade? Is that right? Because the dry bulk trade is it's it's bulk by definition. There, you know, it's just a a big pile of something, so to speak. That's right. We we have uh, of course for in in the dry bulk trade. Of course, they if they look on the ships, they they see all the pipes and they see it's a bit uncommon. But you know the fact you can open the hatches and they look alike. And also, they, of course, they are the best maintained dry bulk ship in the world. I mean, they are the, the cargo coating, and they are, of course, followed up by oil companies. Yeah, so, no dry cargo ship is cleaned as often as yours, I would say, yeah, right? So, so I think, you know, they are performing extremely well as a, as a dry ship. So I think when, when dry charters get the uh, clean of our cargo, they are normally quite happy with the. Uh, so, so, so that's the difference. So the, the challenge is the oil companies uh, where they, who many have had policies that they needed to use tankers where the three last cargoes was clean petroleum products. Uh, and all the systems and all the, what you call, the way of, of choosing ships was based on that policy. And then, of course, then we come in with a bit odd ships, new, new and no mind, smarter ways of doing things. And to get through the door of the of the oil majors, that's a challenge. But we are quite persistent. We we never give up. We we are still there. <laughs> and, and that shows. And we show that we we add on more and more customers every quarter. And 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 that is of course important to, to create efficiency in our trading. That basically every terminal which have a cargo we can go into. And that was the challenge in the start. And we have come a long way. Yeah, I can imagine. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about the ownership of the company? Because it is an unusual ownership profile. I mean, you don't have to go into the the entire history of the company, but I think it's important to talk about, first of all, because obviously if you have one owner who owns as much of the company as as, as is the case with Clavness, then it, it makes a difference. And also it gives you a different 
image in terms of corporate governance because you feel like you have a responsibility to that owner. So maybe you could talk a little bit about that. I think, uh, you know, I, I always try to bring up governance in any investment, but in particular with shipping because there's such a wide range of uh, operators, of ways of operating, of treating shareholders that it's it's really a minefield out there. You have to be very careful about who you're dealing with. And because for many investors, they will have not have explored you before. Maybe you could just save them some time and explain. No, I think the, 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 the company is a part of a group now being 80 years old, uh, and uh, it's controlled by Mr. Tron Harald Klavnes, who is the, the son of the founder. Uh, and they, they own 53.8% uh, of the company. Uh, and it's, I think it's, it's a group in Norway which is very highly regarded in terms of innovation and quality and typically company that has over the years have had so many partnerships with so many companies, both on the investor side and on the cargo side. They operate pools on behalf of other owners. So all this goes on, you know, the way you treat your partners, the transparency and the quality of dealing with in your, in your business. And that, I think, it's is what we bring with us in history. It, it, so it's it's the way we, we do our business and also it's the way we, the risk we take because you, you are managing a big part of the wealth of our main owner and as we, of course, also for for other shareholders. Uh, and and the starting point by going on the stock exchange was basically that we wanted to expand the concept because we saw the drivers we talked about are coming. And our concept will be having increasing value. Uh, and Mr. Klavnes was clear that he rather wanted to own a smaller part of something big than a big part of something small. <laughs> uh, and, and I think that is, uh, they've been extremely supportive. Uh, and, and we have a lot of advantages being a part of a big group in terms of getting economy of scale of back office and, and having the resources on legal and personnel and all these things that 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 is makes uh, it more everything more efficient okay uh, i guess i have maybe one last question because we could you know be here all day talking about the company and uh, about the markets but just something out of curiosity which i haven't mentioned to you before does the company have any plans to pursue a listing in the u.s for example or other markets the reason i ask is because i spend a lot of time on my website talking about Oslo listed companies. And I think there's a certain frustration there because for uh, institutional investors in the US, it's uh, tricky for them to access Oslo markets. So is that at all in the cards or do you think you could safely exclude it or how do you feel? I think, you know, what we are looking at, I think that's something which we will evaluate into the new year is to do this what we call secondary listing. I, I don't know what exactly to call it, but at least you can, there are a couple of Norwegian companies which have, have done that. Uh, in in New York, um, but again, it's that is, is at least is a little a little step on the way, okay. uh, and then but but of course, given the size of a company, I think it at least at this stage it will not be efficient. But you know, if we succeed to grow it as we talked about over the the years, then I think uh, yes, then uh, New York listing could be in the cards. But uh, you have to that will be a, co a couple of years ahead in time. Right. Okay, that makes sense. All right. Well, listen, thank you so much for taking the time to to talk to our listeners who will be delighted to learn about a new exciting company who is uh, technologically innovating in the shipping space. 
in two sectors which have already existed for many decades, if not hundreds of years. But it just goes to prove that uh, if you're willing to give it some thought and take some risks, uh, you're able to uh, invent something to serve both markets, which I think is really exciting. So uh, I look forward to maybe talking to you about it some other time. And in the meanwhile, I'm going to be doing my research with even more interest. So thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for inviting me.